This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. Thank you for all those who wrote in about last week's episode or commented. Rabbi Chaim Brook, truly an extraordinary person. And it was a great privilege to bring his story to so many of you. We had great listenership for that episode. This week, I'm very excited to bring you a timely feature. I mentioned last week that I try to release on Monday or Tuesday. And you'll notice, for those, again, listening in real time, that, again, today is Wednesday. And no, I did not mix my days up, but rather, I wanted to release this episode on 9-11 itself, because our guest today, Ken Feinberg, is one of the premier arbitrators and mediators in the country. He's handled the claims process for almost every major national tragedy in the last 20 or 30 years including, but certainly not limited to, 9-11, where he managed the 9-11 Claims Fund. He was the one in charge of establishing the protocols for allocating the funds that the government distributed to victims and their families and overseeing the distribution process. Really a fascinating person with a charming Boston accent, but the weight of the world on his shoulders in so many cases. So I think it's a very appropriate interview for those, again, listening on 9-11 or really any time thereafter. Again, I hope to get back to a Monday or Tuesday release schedule in the near future. I may take a week off because of the craziness of my current schedule and bring it back a week from Monday. And then again, of course, we'll have to see the schedule with the Jewish holidays looming on the horizon. A reminder again, as always, to please subscribe wherever you're listening, whether that is on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever it might be, please spread the word and share this podcast with others, friends, and family, those who you know enjoy podcasts in general and who might appreciate being inspired by all of our Jews you should know. A reminder again to follow us on social media, both Instagram and Facebook spelled out fully Jews you should know, and on Twitter with the letter U. And now to our conversation with renowned arbitrator and mediator and the chief architect of the 9-11 claims process, Ken Feinberg. And we are here with Ken Feinberg, noted attorney and advocate for many critical causes coming to us from his own law firm, uh, the law offices of Kenneth Feinberg. How are you, Ken? I'm fine, and thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, so as we do with all of our guests, I'm going to ask you to take it from the top and give us a little bit of a biographical sketch. I think I was warned ahead of time that you have a pronounced Boston accent or Boston accent. So uh, I guess that will tell us a little bit, but give us the story. Grew up in Brockton, Massachusetts, about 20 miles south of Boston. Graduated Brockton High School. Went to the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, then to NYU Law School. After that, I was a law clerk to the chief judge of New York. 
and then uh, was a prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York. For five years, I spent time in Washington working closely with Senator Edward Kennedy, and after that, went into private practice. Uh, it's, my, it's interesting hearing a Bostonian say that they worked for the Chief Justice of New York. <laughs> right. Um, my professional career really uh, began in 1984 when uh, the Chief Judge of the Federal Court in Brooklyn, Jack Weinstein, Sounds asked me to become the special master on mediator in the Agent Orange product liability litigation involving the herbicide that was um, sprayed in Vietnam, uh, resulting in um, alleged injuries to Vietnam veterans. And um, I handled that case. And after that, I became more involved in alternative dispute resolution, mediation, arbitration over the years with some of the very prominent public uh, catastrophes. Now, just heading back a little bit in your history, how did your family end up in Boston? Were you a long time Boston family? Are there immigrants in, in your background? Uh, my uh, great grandfather and my grandfather came from Lithuania around 1890. Huh. Right at the and, beginning of the big wave of immigration. I'm sorry? Right at the start of that big wave of immigration. Of immigration. And my family, uh, my relatives, my, the generation before me grew up in Boston. My father and mother moved to Brockton, a suburb of Boston, where I was reared. And uh, we had these long-standing Massachusetts roots. What was Jewish life like in Boston and more specifically in the, in the suburbs? Because you were not in the city itself. I can't imagine Brockton was a major Jewish center uh, in, in the mid-20th century. No, but what you did learn about Brockton's Jewish community, after World War II, up until the Vietnam War, there was a very vibrant, close-knit, communitarian Jewish ethic in Brockton. There were probably about 3,500, maybe 4,000 Jewish citizens, three synagogues in Brockton. And a very optimistic time for Jewry, for Israel. It was a time when everybody felt that the Jewish community sticking together, growing together, as part of an optimistic time in American life, could do, uh, do whatever, whatever the goals you could achieve. Was this after the Six-Day War, or it was uh, earlier than that? Earlier. This was after World War II. Up, um, um, I would say, through the Six-Day War until Vietnam really changed a lot in America and a lot of cynicism and skepticism thereafter. Interesting. Was your family very active in that Jewish, as you put it, communitarian? No, not very. My yeah. mother was a member of the synagogue choir. But it was mostly a uh, conservative synagogue, Temple Beth Amuna, no longer um, in existence. But back then, um, major Jewish holidays, bat mitzvahs, bar mitzvahs, Shabbat services. Um, I wouldn't say overly committed or overly active, but maintaining a Jewish heritage. And I imagine you were a long-suffering Red Sox fan. 
that and of course my kids grew up here in Washington. They're big Baltimore Orioles. Fans. Okay, great. There were no Washington Nationals then. Right. So uh, Baltimore Orioles are also uh, a team. Likewise, likewise. Did you switch allegiances in adulthood or uh, stuck with the Red Sox? Well, you stay with the Red Sox, but I must say with your children, you have to switch allegiances a little bit to maintain <laughs> family harmony. Of course, in recent years, the Red Sox have been a better train to ride. Yes, that's right. The Orioles are in a very, very difficult, financially in a very difficult division. When you're in a division with the Yankees and the Red Sox, your hands are tied. Yeah. When you were in New York working as a uh, for the Chief Justice and so forth, did you uh, get into a lot of Red Sox-Yankees rivalry no, no, not conversations? Too not too much. Busy uh, practicing law and trying to advance your career. Now, did you always want to be an attorney? No. I wanted originally to be an actor. An actor? And, um, until I graduated from college, I thought I would go to drama school. But my father gave me very good advice. He said there were too many actors waiting on tables as waiters in New York. Why don't you take your acting skills and go to the courtroom? That's right. Become a lawyer. And that's what I did. And it was sound advice. Did you have a lot of experience acting throughout high school? Did you do oh, yes. community theater, high school? What did you do? High school, college, all of that. What kind of acting? All sorts. Dramas, comedies, Shakespeare. Um, it would all be um, pretty much the gamut. Could you sing like your mother? Uh, no, but I'm a great opera lover, but I don't <laughs> Now, ultimately, I mean, it's interesting because law, the only theatrical outlet in law really is for a, a litigator, right? I would say the vast majority of attorneys are uh, stuck behind their desks reviewing contracts and not, uh, you know, doing the law and order uh, kind of thing that you see on TV. Uh, did you, so did you know that you specifically wanted to be in front of a jury, in front of, in, in a courtroom? Yes. I always wanted to take my acting skills and be a litigator. I think that we have too many lawyers in our country today. We don't need all these lawyers. And too many young people decide they want to go to law school because they don't know what else to do. Well, that's a big uh, a reason not to go to law school. But I knew from the very beginning I wanted to go to law school, I wanted to do well, and I wanted to be a litigator. Were you passionate about any causes in terms of advocacy or criminal justice and things of that nature? Well, I was interested in the subject matter, not active causes. I was interested in learning more about the criminal justice system. I was a prosecutor for three years, federal prosecutor in New York, uh, tried many criminal cases. And then when I worked for Senator Kennedy, I was very much involved in criminal justice issues in the Senate Judiciary Committee. How did you encounter uh, Kennedy? I heard that he had an opening. I applied with my Boston accent, <laughs> and um, he interviewed me, and I got the job. What were you doing for him? I had that three years of prosecutorial experience, which came in very handy. Wow. So now, where did your career go from then? As you, uh, you were, again, in the prosecutor's office, you were in New York, in New York City. Uh, it sounds like that wasn't a lifelong career at that point or ultimately because it seems like you may have switched gears, you got more into mediation. Where, where, did, where did your career go from that point? From my career as a prosecutor, I joined Senator Kennedy in Washington doing criminal justice policy for five years. And then in 1980, I 
was invited to open a Washington office of a distinguished New York law firm. And it was that? while I was in that law firm that Judge Weinstein asked me to become a mediator in Asian Orange. Which firm was that that you opened? Kay Scholler, Fierman, Hayes, and Handler. Um, a predominantly Jewish firm. It, it merged with Arnold and Porter about two years ago. Just two years ago. Oh, wow. Arnold and Porter I've heard of. The other I have not. But Very good firm. Really? So you were, you were working there in that firm, and at that point you were, I assume, doing more civil defense? Or what, what was your... I was mostly, until I got the call from Judge Weinstein, doing Washington civil regulatory work, administrative law. Yeah. And then I got the call from the judge asking me to become the mediator in Agent Orange, and that single case changed my entire career after that. Incredible. I want to get to that in a minute. Just curious what you did with Kennedy in terms of criminal justice reform. What was or policy? What was what were some of the bail reform, or, sentencing reform, and a major rewrite of the uh, federal criminal code, which had been recommended by a special commission, and we worked on that. So we worked on a host of issues involving criminal justice. What were some of the major changes that you needed to implement? Sentencing, the sentencing guideline system. Uh, was a very important change, and that was the most dominant change, but also consideration of how to change some federal laws, hate crimes, and other laws that needed to be updated. It's interesting because uh, I think the true, true Crime and Criminal Justice uh, podcasts have become very, very popular over the last number of years. Uh, I think really catapulted by Serial and a number of others. And so I think that criminal justice reform and sentencing guidelines in particular have really uh, taken center stage in a lot of arenas. Have you kept up with that debate and discussion? And there are many people, I think, calling today for, for another overhaul in that realm. Is that something that you've kept up with? And, and what are your thoughts about it? Oh, I think that the uh, criminal justice system is in need of reform. I think the substantive criminal law is in need of reform. And I think the efforts underway to um, improve the criminal justice system, not only substantively, but procedurally, the process, and making sure that the, uh, the, the racism and bias is eliminated from the system, I think is very important, and it should be a priority for any administration. There's a lot going on now, I think, in, in various precincts, but in policing, advocating things like double-blind uh, witness identification, and things that try to eliminate uh, personal bias and, and racism and things like that from the equation. I think that um, you, you've got to take account, uh, take into account all of those issues in, in a trial to try and make it fairer and more just. Do you still have a lot of interaction with prosecutors on, on no. the criminal sense? So you're not really in touch with that part of the law because you know I wonder sometimes how many prosecutors you know that are most interested in, in true justice versus, you know, versus their own uh, statistical record and so forth? I think most prosecutors are very fair. I think they try and do the right thing. They try and promote the, the, the just result. There are exceptions, but uh, I don't think that individual celebration or growth of one's career, I don't think that enters into most prosecutorial decisions. So now you had this unique situation where you were tapped to be a mediator. And 
just drill down on that a little bit. If you could explain what mediation really involves, how it's different than a strict courtroom sort of approach, you know, and, and, and why were you specifically asked to do that? Did you have a certain set of skills that qualified you to enter that kind of domain as opposed to the more, I guess, confrontational milieu of, of a courtroom battle? A mediation is a voluntary process. The mediator is a neutral. He listens to both sides, or she listens to both sides. The mediator has no authority to impose a decision on anybody. The mediator is a facilitator trying to get the parties to come together and get to yes, get to yes, get to an agreement. And I was asked to be a mediator in Agent Orange because the judge knew me from my days as a clerk on for the chief judge of the Court of Appeals, not this judge, but the Court of Appeals, and thought I could do a good job, asked me to do it, and uh, we were successful. Agent Orange, I mediated a settlement in about eight weeks. The case had been kicking around for almost four years, so it, was, it worked, and that changed my career. What was different about that process versus what you were probably used to? It's a very private process. It's, there's no judge involved. It is a voluntary consensus-driven process in which you privately try and get the parties to an agreement. So that, how did that change what you were doing? In other words, did you have to really consciously shift the way that you were thinking? When you, Normally, you're advocating for one side, whether that's the state or... Of course. Yeah. This... This is a complete sea change from what I was doing. And this was me being acting as a neutral, not as an advocate, trying to get both sides to understand the strengths and weaknesses of their case. And the result was a successful settlement. So was that a difficult shift for you, or how did you find that mental change? It was difficult, but uh, the judge supported me, and the parties were eager to try and settle the case. And we got it settled uh, in about eight weeks for about $250 million over a 10-year period. What did you learn in that process about how to negotiate compromise and how to get people with very opposing perspectives to meet somewhere in the middle? And, and was that an exciting prospect? Did you, did you feel sort of moved by the possibilities? Or what did you learn about negotiation when you saw a process that was so different than what you'd been used to trying to find. Well, you learn a lot. You learn, you learn a lot. You learn how to be dogged, but creative, flexible. There are always different ways to get to a settlement, to an agreement. Adversarialness isn't always necessary. Sometimes combativeness gives way to a more calm, informed, candid assessment of risk. And um, I learned a lot in Agent Orange. Did you feel inspired to change courses right then and there that you wanted to switch to a more of a mediator kind of position moving forward? Instantly. Instantly. I realized, based on my Agent Orange experience, that alternative dispute resolution. Um, in many cases, is a better way to go and results in a win-win for adversaries who might otherwise litigate for years. So once you had that sort of revelation, 
what did you do with it? Were there instant opportunities to switch gears entirely or did you have to sort of bide your time till you could move in that direction? Instant opportunities. As soon as the Agent Orange case settled on the front page of every newspaper in the United States, I started getting calls. Help me mediate this case. Help me mediate that case. Help me get to yes on this dispute. Can you do it for us? You did it for them. Can you help us? My career did an instant 180 as a result of Agent Orange mediation. At that point, you were still working for a firm, right? You had the, uh, you were in the in this DC firm, correct? That's correct. But then um, after that, within the next four or five years, I went off on my own and held and um, established my own mediation firm and have done so ever since. And so in that capacity, you were strictly doing mediation. And arbitration and negotiation, and anything other than litigation. And still, so that means it was always a voluntary process, right? And always. It's, it's not that no, the, the parties are never signing uh, an agreement a priori that says they'll abide by your recommendation or anything of that nature. Only in arbitration. In arbitration, the parties agree that the arbitrator or the arbitration panel will render a binding decision. But mediation or 9-11 claims processing or the BP oil spill, that's all voluntary. Nobody has to participate. So after the Asian Orange and after you ultimately formed your own shop, what were some of the signature cases you dealt with? You mentioned a few of them and we'll get to 9-11. Um, the BP oil spill, was that a major landmark case for you? And 9-11 in 2001, BP oil spill in 2010, the uh, Virginia Tech shootings in 2007. Um, there's been Newton, Boston Marathon bombings, the General Motor Ignition Switch Program. I mean, the uh, Aurora, Colorado movie shootings, the Pulse nightclub shootings in Orlando, the terrorist attack in Orlando, the Harvest concert in Las Vegas. The, the shooter from the Mandalay Hotel, all, I mean, there's been Sandy Hook, the 25 first graders, the 25 first graders who were killed. Um, there's been a wide range of programs. Now, that's an incredible list of, of seminal uh, moments. I'm just curious, you know, what is the role of a mediator in these kinds of mega crises? Who are you mediating between? Is it between the government? And the victims, I mean, because in, in cases of criminal activity, obviously the criminals are not sitting down to the table with you to de determine how much they want to pay their victims. So mediation, is a, mediation is a civil remedy, not criminal. Right. In my mediation experience, I have one party, the plaintiff on one side, or multiple plaintiffs, and the uh, alleged wrongdoer, the defendant on the other side. Sometimes the government's involved, sometimes they're not. Insurance companies versus insurers, wholesalers versus retailers. There's all sorts of cases, disputes that give rise to mediation. But if you're talking about, let's say, uh, a school shooting, who would be the defendant in that case? There's no defendant. It's a civil process where, in a school shooting, donors have voluntarily contributed X dollars. Let's say in, in, um, in school shootings in Virginia Tech, $8 million. And Virginia Tech asks me to 
not mediate, but to design and administer a claims program to pay the, uh, the, uh, the, the victims. Right now, the Catholic Church has asked me to design and administer a program to compensate the victims of minors who were victims of, of church sexual abuse. So, I mean, these programs vary in uh, scope and uh, depend really on who it is that's asking me to establish, design, and administer these programs. So in these kinds of cases, you're actually hired by the uh, representative body that wants to allocate the funds, and they're asking you to design the process to do so. That's right. I'm asked to design the program and thereafter to uh, administer it. Which be in, administrating means actually interfacing with the aggrieved parties. Well, the, the abused parties are invited to enter the program voluntarily. Be, they're offered compensation, and they decide based on the protocol that exists that explains the terms and conditions of the program whether they want to participate. So what would, let's see, if you could walk us through a sample process. Let's take the Virginia Tech shooting. It's, it's a shooting that uh, touched the Jewish community in a very specific way. Of course, all the shootings around the country touch everyone, every American citizen. But Virginia Tech, I believe there was, there was a Holocaust survivor killed, and it, it was a very uh, noted tragedy within the Jewish community as well. What would be your process? You said donors, I guess, from all over the country are sending in funds to compensate victims. What kind of process do you go through? How do you establish rules and regulations? I imagine you want to make sure the victims are compensated without undue hardship and bureaucracy, but also in a way that's fair and thorough. How do you do all that? First, you sit down with local officials who are going to be uh, public officials, mayors, governors, and you work out the terms and conditions of the protocol. How much money do you have? Who will be eligible? How much should they get? What's the methodology? What proof requirements are there? And who decides that? Well... I'm the administrator. I'm designing it. I decide that after I get input from the uh, public officials. And then I take that draft document and I invite the public, victims, their families to comment. Fully transparent. Will this work? Does it seem to be the right way to go? And then you finalize that document after everybody's had some input. So what would be an example of, let's say, some terms and conditions or how this kind of compensation program would look? In uh, Virginia Tech, you've got $8 million. Who should be eligible? Should the uh, families of the dead be eligible? Of course. What about the families or what about the victims who are physically injured by bullet wounds or jumping out of the second floor um, school? Yeah, they should be eligible. But what if, they, what if they went to the hospital and were sent home? What if they weren't hospitalized? What about emotional distress? Students watching from their campus dormitories across the street, should they be eligible? You have to make some tough decisions on who's eligible. And if they are eligible, how much money can they receive? So it sounds like there's some really thorny ethical questions at play. Where do you look for guidance on those? How have you developed kind of that base of, uh, do you have any guiding stars, you know, in, in that process? Well, you look at the programs that have worked before uh, as precedent. You look to the law of a particular jurisdiction as to what the law says about valuing lives. A death is more valuable than a physical injury. 
you try and um, get input from members of the community, and you try and come up with something that appears to be credible and reasonable and fair. Do you ever get pushback? Every time. I've never had a uh, program where I didn't get pushback. Justifiable. Because people want more. People, no. People want more. They want it spent differently. Or they want a different allocation of available resources. It's not that they want more. It's very rare that an individual who comes to see me wants more. What they want is validation of a death of a loved one or to vent about life's unfairness. You gotta be a little bit of a rabbi too, you know. When you, when you, <laughs> yeah. And uh, it can become very difficult. So you actually will have individual uh, members of the victim class, so to speak, coming to you to ask for some kind of change or, or whatever it might be. And you might find yourself playing a pastoral role as a rabbi. Well, I, think or that's right. I sometimes think that a divinity degree would be better than a law degree. Or how a degree you, in psychiatry. Psychology, yeah. How have you learned to develop those, those skills, which are so different than sort of the nuts and bolts contracting and financial allocations? Very, very different skill. This is much more of a human interaction kind of skill. That's how right. did you develop that? Um, uh, I don't know how I developed that. I must say that um, uh, it's part of my personality, the empathy that you need. I must say that the toughest part of all of these assignments is empathy and the emotion associated, not in mediation involving companies, but in these claims like 9-11 or Virginia Tech or the Pittsburgh shootings, the Tree of Life synagogues, the emotion that you're dealing with people who are very vulnerable, who lost loved ones, innocent victims of tragedy, and they'll come and say to me, Mr. Feinberg, there is no God. No God could allow this to happen to my daughter or my son or my wife. And it's, um, that's what's, uh, what's difficult. If you take on these assignments like I do, you better brace yourself. Brace yourself for what you're going to hear. What do you say when somebody comes to you in that, in that state of such angst? Very little. I've learned that it's better to empathize by just listening. Words don't mean very much. And you try and listen and express your sadness and your sorrow, but try and avoid probing or trying to explain. I don't think that helps very much. Outside of 9-11, uh, because it's such an overarching tragedy, what singular case has, has touched you or impacted you the most? The BP oil spill, because of the volume of claims. In the BP oil spill, I received 1,250,000 claims in 16 months from 50 states. I didn't know the oil had got to Maryland, and then I got about 300 claims. <laughs> I forgot there. to put in my claim, it sounds like. My goodness. That's right. You can't get paid if you don't put in a claim. <laughs> and the sheer volume of those claims, claiming all economic damage because of the oil spill and the closing of the Gulf, proved to be a real, real hassle. How did you deal with such a massive volume? Did you bring in a lot of people under you to review claims or? You deal with it, but you tell people that, you know, saying that you were, saying that you were injured doesn't make it so. You're going to have to show me some proof that the uh, oil spill in the Gulf harmed you economically. And if you can't document that, harm, if you don't have tax returns or some other basis of documentation, 
I'm not going to honor that claim. Very difficult. Moving on to 9-11. Where were you on 9-11? And then how did you get involved in the story? I had just left a law school class where I was teaching at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia when I saw in the student union on the television that one of the planes had hit the World Trade Center. As I was going to the train station to return to Washington, I saw another plane had hit, and then you knew it was an attack. And when I got as far as Wilmington, Delaware, on the way back to Washington, all trains stopped because a plane hit the Pentagon. And a group of us hired a taxi to drive us home. That's quite a drive. So how did you then get involved in the story? And did you have a I heard that Congress had passed a law setting up the 9-11 fund, and I told Senator Kennedy, this is right what I've been doing, this is my work. He and another a Republican friend of mine, Senator Chuck Hagel from Nebraska, the two of them called the administration, Bush, and Attorney General John Ashcroft, and uh, urged them to hire me as somebody with experience in dealing with these things. And I interviewed with uh, Attorney General Ashcroft, and he hired me. So what was that process like, and how, how long did it take to sort through everything? That process was 33 months by statute. The 9-11 fund was a statute created by Congress. For 33 months, I processed 7,300 claims, death and physical injury, did it pro bono, did not receive any compensation, and paid 5,300 people $7.1 billion of the taxpayers' money. Very emotional, very difficult. People who made perfunctory goodbyes to wives and children and husbands and never saw them again. Never expected it. Innocent victims in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that was it. Did you become particularly connected to any specific victims or families? No. No, you have to maintain your professional objectivity, your independence. You don't want to get too close to that stuff. Did you get at all involved in in any of the, the Jewish law sort of issues that were involved? There was a lot of, you know, things about who was really been killed and, and questions of Jewish divorce or death and, and things of that nature. Did that at all touch your desk in any way or totally separate? You know, Jewish law didn't touch my desk, but I'll tell you, what was a great help to me was Jewish ritual and how in the Jewish faith you react to death and the communitarian spirit of the community and rallying around the victim. No victim suffers alone. The Shiva and how the community goes to the graveside and participates in a communal burying of the dead. I learned a lot about how to deal with 9-11 from my Jewish upbringing and my understanding about Jewish ritual and Jewish respect for the dead. Was there any one particular lesson or concept that, that was most influential for you in that, in that regard? No, no, just the whole process of knowing that when somebody loses a loved one, you don't grieve alone. The, the, the community is there to rally around you and help you, and that's what I tried to do. In this case, it was really a national or even international community. That's right. Morning together. 
what was maybe the thorniest or most complicated piece of that particular negotiation or arbitration? The most difficult part of 9-11 fund is trying to help people move on. A woman came to see me, 24 years old, sobbing. She lost her husband. He was a fireman at the World Trade Center. And she said, he left me with our two children, six and four. Now, Mr. Feinberg, you're going to give me $2.5 million. I want it in 30 days. I said to her, Mrs. Jones, why do you need the money in 30 days? She said, why? I'll tell you why. I have terminal cancer. I have 10 weeks to live. My husband was going to survive me and take care of our two children. Now they're going to be orphans. Mr. Feinberg, I have got to get this money while I still have my faculties. I've got to find a guardian. I've got to set up a trust. They're going to be orphans. I ran down to the U.S. Treasury. We got them to accelerate the payment, got it to her. Eight weeks later, she died. Case after case after case like that. So, Ken Feinberg, a renowned mediator, arbitrator of great international significance. And it's really been an honor speaking with you. And just hearing some of the thorny dilemmas that you have to deal with, it stresses me out just thinking about them. I can only imagine what you go through in each of these cases, but we need someone doing it. And we're so grateful that you're there in that position. I'm glad I could do it, and I hope I'll be invited back, and I wish you all the best. Thank you very much. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash jews you should know finally if you have enjoyed this podcast please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to jews you should know